Elihu's third speech. This is chapter 35. This speech is going to have a pretty similar pattern to the first two speeches. With one difference. In the first two speeches, Elihu has quoted Job. He stated Job's argument or, or something that Job has said. And then he's refuted that. But uh, what he does here lacks what he's done in the last two chapters, which is to talk to the gathered crowd, the you plural, before he talks to Job, the you singular. And on this point, he goes straight to Job, the you singular, when he argues with him about what he has said and what he is believing. Job 35 answers a really let me say wrestles with, God will answer it in a bit, but Job 35 wrestles with a really significant question. And what's funny is it's one of those questions that as adults, we've probably stopped wrestling with. This is one, not because we've come up with the answer, but because we think it's wrong or juvenile to wrestle with this question. And yet our teenagers, our kids are being more honest in, in saying the question out loud. And so we better have answers, not just for our kids, though we need them for our kids. We better have answers for ourselves because there's, there are going to come points in our own lives where the answer to this question is going to make all the difference for what we do, for how we respond in a given trial or situation. The question is, what's the point of being good? And you think, well, it's, I mean, I know lots of good. Do you? Do you know lots of good answers to that? (laughs) Because it's really at the heart of what's come up in Job's response to his own suffering in many ways it's come up implicitly and because of that some of the some of the writers that take a more negative view of Elihu accuse Elihu of misquoting Job in his accusations about what Job has said but I don't think that's true at all Job 34 uh, 9 Elihu's saying he puts uh, what profit is it to me and what do I gain by not sinning. And yes, Job, again, didn't say exactly those words, but that's the implicit words beneath so much of what Job is saying. With my suffering, and I did all of that good, what's the point? (laughs) If I'm going to get the same outcome, what is the point? And that connection between virtue, doing good, and blessing, getting good, has been considered, asked all throughout human history. And so this speech, Christopher Ash says, is Elihu's sharp but necessary rebuke to anyone who falls into the trap of saying, what was the point of being good? That if I was going to get this outcome, I shouldn't have lived for God. I should have just done what I wanted to do if it was going to turn out this way anyway. And that's what this speech is about. The key quotation is in verse 3. So I'll ask Andrew, will you read 1 through 4? And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Verse 3 there is the key question. What is the point if even when I do good, I get bad? What was the point of doing the good? What's the advantage? What does it gain me? And Elihu 
this is why more and more you see Elihu not accept Job's claims of innocence. And you have to process that very carefully because his friends were accusing Job of suffering because he sinned. And Job said, no, 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 I was innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And he's right on that. He's not suffering because he sinned. But Elihu's accusation is different. Elihu's accusation is you are sinning in your suffering. And this accusation is an example of that. You are saying that it is purposeless to do good if what you are going to get in return is pain and suffering. And so Elihu has several um, several answers to this, or his answer has several parts. The first of these is in verses 5 through 8. Karen, can you read that? Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness is son of man. So he starts with an illustration. Look up at the clouds. Look at the clouds in the heavens, the clouds in the sky that you see going by. If you are generous, does it change the clouds? If you are an adulterer, does it change the clouds? No. The clouds are going to continue just as they were before. In the same way, Elihu says... God is transcendent, and therefore, there's a negative and a positive consequence of this. Negatively, sin all you want, you're not going to harm God. God is not diminished by our sin. God is offended by the presence of sin. There's lots of things that God has in response, but he's, he's not harmed by our sin. We, we are not capable of causing harm to a transcendent God. Positively, you can be as good as you want. You are not capable of putting a transcendent God in your debt. Can't be done. You see the argument here? And it's important that we get it because he's not saying that God is so far removed from us that, that nothing that we do affects him or matters. or That's not the point here. The point here is within the realm of ultimate justice, the realm of ontology, God's very being. Your sin can't harm him and your good can't put him in your debt. It's not like with humans where... I really can cause long-term harm to my wife and children by my sin. I really can at least feel as though, and perhaps rightly, believe sometimes that I've put people in my debt by the good I do toward them. I show loyalty, you should show loyalty. I show kindness, you should show kindness. That's the whole golden rule thing, isn't it, right? I mean, it's not, it's the kind of the crass way of saying it, but the whole golden rule is, hey, go around putting everybody in your debt by how well you treat them. It's not the way we want to think about it, but... You can do that with humans. God is transcendent. It cannot be done. Ash writes, God in his very nature and eternal blessedness is impassable and immutable, unchangeably the same. Our, probably our kids who came through the Heidelberg class will remember more freshly what these attributes of God mean. His immutability and his impassibility. But they both speak to his transcendence, the, the ways in which God is just not us. One of God's attributes is the solitariness of God. It doesn't mean that God is lonely. It does mean that God is God alone. It's just if you're making the category of things that can be, that category has God and nothing else and no one else. As much as God gives to us, even, even uh, us being image bearers and reflecting in certain ways, th- there's a, a very thick iron bar <laughs> at some point, and nothing passes through it. It's just God and then everything else. And so, 
again, Elihu's not saying it doesn't matter how we behave. He's saying how God responds to our behavior is not in the category of what we did changed God, affected God, uh, put God in our debt. God has no obligation to respond in any specific way to us. Now, there's one monstrous caveat to this, which is God's promises. God cannot go back on his promises. And so the only certainty we should have about anything is what God has promised. (laughs) Heaven and earth may pass away, but God's promises. The mountains may crumble and fall into the sea, but God's promises. This is what scripture is trying to tell you. All the things that you're so sure about, there's a good chance they're going to crumble away and fall into the sea. God's promises. Apart from that, uh, God is not bound positively or negatively to, to react, to respond in a given moment to our good or bad in a specific way. There's a tier of ultimate justice in the keeping, in, uh, keeping of his promises and in what works out ultimately being in accord with his nature and his being. We're never looking at that. We're looking at Tuesday and complaining that Tuesday doesn't match his character and his being. We're looking at this one relationship in our lives and complaining that that doesn't reflect the justice and the goodness that God claims to have. And like you keep chasing that ladder up as much as you want. You're going to hit that iron bar of impassibility. And Job's getting real close to hitting it. We're, we're within chapters here of, of Job bonking his head on, on that impassibility. Since we cannot affect the blessedness of God by our actions, there is no way we should expect to gain any kind of leverage with him. And that's the self-righteousness that's come out in Job's argument as he's been working through this. He's right that he did not do evil to deserve what happened to him. And so he's arguing with his counselors that that's not true and that they're wrong and the system's wrong and their understanding of this is wrong. And Job is correct. But then as Job is done talking to his friends, and it cropped up sometimes when he was talking to his friends, But when he's done talking to his friends, and a few chapters ago he made his summary argument, kind of his final appeal before God, you'd hear more and more and more of this, not just, I didn't do the evil they're accusing me of, but you start to hear Job saying, I didn't deserve any of this at all, and in fact, I deserved better. Let me rattle off the list of sins that I did not commit. And you notice in Job's list of sins, and this will happen any time that we are setting the standard of righteousness. What happens when we get to set all the checkboxes that you have to check? What are the requirements to be fully righteous? What happens every single time you and I write this list? We get to check all the boxes. We're very righteous. <laughs> we conveniently leave out other things. <laughs> We make a list that we can check off. Job's list, I'm not, I'm not mean to the poor. I help and am compassionate with those in need. I've not been greedy with my wealth. I've not been sexually immoral. Check, 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 check. Where's the paragraph in Job's summary about self-righteousness? It's conspicuously absent, isn't it? Just like it is for us. I mean, I hope uh, you know, we, we do this, not like we used to do this back when we were sinners. We do this now. When you're sitting there stewing at your spouse or your mother or your father or your friend or whoever else that you can't believe they did this to you. They said this to you. They treated you this way. Who could do this? You are going down your own. I never. And you list things and then there's this empty space on your checklist that's all the things you've done and are doing and you leave those off the list 
That's why, just a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's a useful rabbit trail. This is the answer to the challenge when people ask, how do you deal? The Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. Why are Christians so judgy? And the answer is because Jesus tells us to be judgy in the same sermon where he says, judge not lest ye be judged. He says, you will know them by the fruit they bear. What is inspecting the quality of someone's fruit if not judging? And what Jesus tells us in that sermon are some really critical ways that we should not judge and the ways that we should judge. And this, making the list of our own choosing, judging by our own standards, is one of the three big things Jesus says in that sermon about wrong and sinful judging. By the measure with which you measure, you will be measured. That is by an arbitrary and capricious standard of other people's imaginations. If that's how you would like to judge people, then that's how you will be judged as well. We, can't, we have to judge by God's standard. God's list is comprehensive when it comes to goodness and rightness and morality. And Job has this self-righteousness because his friends have accused him of all these things that he didn't do. And it puffs him up more and more and more. I didn't do it. I didn't deserve this. And you see how just a tiny tweak the rightness of that argument is from where Job has now just, just shifted. And that's what Elihu's calling out. It's not that God doesn't care how Job behaves. It's not that Job's good works were not good. It's that Job is leaving some boxes off of this. And there's a big difference between saying, I've searched myself. I I cannot find any unconfessed, unrepentant sin that would be the cause of this suffering that God has brought into my life. A Christian ought to be able to say that. We ought to be able to look at our suffering, and sometimes we're going to find exactly the sin that that God may be disciplining us for. But we will also just as often not find it. And we ought to be able to say, Job's counselors are wrong. This is not discipline for a specific sin, at least not one that God has shown me or that I'm aware of. And so we can stand in that sense vindicated before Job's accusers. But there is a difference between that and I don't deserve this, period. I deserve better, period. Because the suggestion is you've put God in your debt. And that's what Elihu cannot abide. You want to know why he's so mad? He's mad at Job's self-righteousness. He's mad that Job would dare to think and speak that God is in his debt because he's been such a good person. And he has been a good person. It's not like, don't let that negate. He's been a good person. But there's a way of being a good person and then still following it, falling into pride. And that's why it says sin is always crouching at the door always you cannot let up you cannot say to yourself self i've arrived look at me i'm magnificent (laughs) all this majesty it does it's no it's no good so the first answer that elihu has is you're asking the wrong question job Job's question, why did I do all this good? What was the point of doing all this good? I was like, what a wrong question. Because if you were ever doing the good to put God in your debt, you don't understand who God is. He's just too transcendent for that calculation. (laughs) That doesn't work. Questions about that point? Yeah. I was wondering kind of the difference between like self-esteem, self-confidence, self-righteousness, or even if we should use those terms, those first two. Like, I'm self-confident, I have high self-esteem. I think like most terms, they're perfectly fine to use, and the question is, what do you mean by them? You can be self-confident because you recognize that God has given you abilities and strengths and experiences that have made you a capable, competent person in a particular area. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, 
what we don't want to be is self-righteous. And self-righteous doesn't mean what our culture thinks it means. Our culture thinks self-righteous means snobbish, like judgmental, or something in that category. Self-righteous is a legal definition. I am justified before God in myself. That manifests in a lot of gross ways. But the ultimate problem is one of self-righteousness. I don't need God's declaration that I'm righteous in Christ. I have my own. That's the question. Is what do you mean by it? What do you mean by self-confident? What do you mean by self-assured? I would say the only word, and this is nitpicking, the only one in that category that you'll never hear me use is self-made. It's no such thing. That person is so blindingly deceived. (laughs) There is no such thing as a self-made man. Uh, All right. Second answer. Uh, Renee, can you read 9 through 16? Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. None says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. And now, because his anger does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. All right. This section of Elihu's speech is the most likely to be misunderstood and misapplied. So I want to go through this really carefully. Elihu is describing, Ash's words, a non-specific situation. In 9 through 13, it's a generality. It's a non-specific situation. And then in 14 to 16, he's going to turn and apply it to Job in specific. One of my seminary professors is a guy, was a guy named Bob Kara. Dr. Kara is a hoot. He is he's a funny man, uh, very gifted, New Testament scholar, great guy. And over three years of seminary, he gives us a list of sort of Bob Kara's maxims, things that are true about scripture and theology that you always want to keep in the back of your mind. So one that I've used with this church the most is that meaning is a circle. That is, there's a dot of meaning, an absolute objective. This is the center of meaning. Do not muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. If the ox is doing the work of plowing your fields, let it eat from those fields while it's working. To fail to do so is sin. That's the dot. But then Paul in the New Testament comes along and says what? Pay your pastor. And he refers to that verse. In the fields in which the pastor is laboring, those fields should provide the the monetary resources the pastor's family needs. That's the circle of meaning. Okay? Here's another Bob Caraism that's really important. And it's uh, it applies to wisdom literature. Normative but not exhaustively normative. All right, what does that mean? You should do this, but not in every, it's not exhaustive, it's not entirely encompassing. It's what is usually the case. It's what is the right explanation. It does not explain Every single situation that looks like this. And this is a struggle for us because the wisdom literature is filled with this. And it's filled with it on this specific point that we're talking about with Job. Do good, get great. Do bad, get bad. Right? Don't 
don't the Psalms and the Proverbs seem to suggest that good things happen to the righteous and bad things happen to the unrighteous? Yeah, that's in there a lot. But then you have Ecclesiastes and you have uh, Job that come along and say, not always. (laughs) Normative, but not exhaustively normative. Everybody got that? Young people, y'all got that? Because this is really critical because what we're about to read from Elihu and understand, the vast majority of the calling themselves Christian world gets wrong. It's that important. All right, here's the situation. The general, verses 9 through 13, non-specific situation. All over the world, there is oppression. And in this oppression, people cry out, verse 9. People call for help, verse 9. That jives with our reality, right? People everywhere are suffering and having problems and bad things. And people everywhere are crying out, calling out in their suffering. Why doesn't God do something about it? And the answer, which is normative, but not exhaustively normative, is that they're not exercising faith. You see how dangerous it is to say that? (laughs) You know the name and claimant world says if you just have more faith when you pray for your child, they'll be cured of cancer. (coughs) That's not the alternative to this. But the fact that that view is wrong doesn't change the normative principle that when people are in their suffering by and large they are not crying out in faith ash says so the problem is that while these people cry they do not pray their cry is a cry of anguish but it is not a cry directed with faith to god doesn't mean that every single time you cry out in faith to God, that suffering is going to go away immediately. But it is the answer to the question most of the time when people cry out, why does God not give them what they want? And the answer is they're not crying out in faith. It's not just Job, y'all. The New Testament says the same thing. The New Testament says the same thing. It says you have not because you ask not. It says faith the size of mustard seed can move mountains. The New Testament says the same thing. Yes, it can be abused. Yes, it can be misused. Yes, normative, but not exhaustively normative. But that doesn't mean you can take it off the board. It's it's in God's word. And that's what Elihu is arguing here, that human beings ought to reach out in faith and not just cry out in pain. So what is crying out in faith versus crying out? Let me keep reading. Okay. It's, it's, it is the question, Pam. It's, it is, it's, it's the question. Uh, let me read Ash a little more. Elihu is not saying there are no people on earth who cry out in faith. Even the Bible doesn't say that. Luke 18, biblical counterexamples of people genuinely crying out in faith. It's a real thing. People do cry out in faith. They did, and you do. Real thing. I'm not saying you always do, though. We'll get there in a minute. But... Theoretically, somebody in this room has cried out in real faith in their suffering. So first of all, Job is saying that there are people, many people, whose cry is not a prayer. And for some of the book of Job, that's described Job himself. When Job complains that he cannot see God and that his case is just languishing there before God while God ignores it, That's not there. And again, Job has moments where the faith breaks through. We've talked about those where he says, I need an advocate, where he says, I know God will be my righteous righteousness in the end. We're not saying Job never has it, but Elihu is calling to attention the, the increasing number of times where Job's cry is not of faith. Where Job's cry is of what I deserve because God's in my debt. What I don't deserve because I'm not one of these wicked evildoers. 
And so that's why Elihu says in verse 16 that his talk about God is empty. And here's the thing. You think, well, no, Paul, this is proof that, that the view you're describing of Elihu isn't right. This is why I agree with the people who say Elihu's wrong about Job too, because this is a wrong accusation about Job, that Job's talk is empty. But here's the problem. The exact phrase that Elihu uses to describe Job's speech on this point is that Job uses words without knowledge. Who will be the next person to use that phrase in direct accusation against Job? God himself. So you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with Elihu. But we're saying the same thing God's about to say. Is that there is in Job's speech an emptiness, a lack of faith. That has crept in to the things that he's saying. And he is now speaking words without knowledge. And as long as he continues, what's Elihu's point? Is Elihu's point to condemn Job? No. Elihu's point is to call Job to faith. The only thing that will ever be a balm for his suffering. If Job's circumstances change tomorrow, it won't be a balm for his suffering. It'll be better circumstances. They won't be a balm. The only balm for his suffering is that closeness with God that comes through faith. And that's what Elihu wants for Job. And so why is Elihu yelling at Job about this? Because as long as Job keeps saying and believing these untrue things about God, He cannot expect God to answer him. The only answer that God, the the, the only answer that will make a difference for us is the answer we receive by God in faith. Sometimes God chooses to speak even in the absence of faith doesn't have to. He's doing that with Judah in our Isaiah passage right now. They don't deserve any of the stuff he's proving to them, but he's using it as an example. Most of the time in our lives, you, you're not going to get that. And the only answer you're ever going to get that is satisfying will come through faith. It may or may not include a change of circumstances. It may or may not include you understanding what, God, what good God is bringing about through this catastrophe. And I mean that sincerely. It might include that information. It might not. You might get to see it. You might not. You might get a massive change in your circumstances. You might not. For your peace of mind, for lack of a better term, that stuff doesn't matter. And we think that stuff is the whole ballgame. We think that stuff is everything. If I could just undo what happened, if I could just get different circumstances, if I could just know the future, and have, if I could get all this stuff, then I would have peace of mind. Nope. Peace of mind comes only as God's response to our faith and trust in him. And that's why Elihu is so angry with Job. Job is mad at God that God isn't giving him peace of mind, that God isn't answering him. And yet he's not looking to God for an answer in faith. He's looking to be self-justified. So that, Pam, gets back to your great question. What is the difference? Now first, let's remember this. If you think that if you do this right, your circumstances are guaranteed to change, You're missing the point. That's what the health and wealth people get wrong. The health and wealth people take verses that are about, for lack of a better term, peace of mind, by which I just mean peace with God, confidence and assurance of our soul, the the ability to persevere through anything. That stuff's intangible, but it's it's significant. It's the whole ballgame. And the way we obtain that, That's what these verses are about. Knock and answer. Seek and you'll find. Ask and it will be given. That's what that is about. 
ultimate things. The health and wealth people get this wrong because they act like it's about temporal things. I don't want my wife to have cancer anymore. I don't want my child to be in rebellion. I don't want to lose my job. I want a jet. I do want a jet. (laughs) And so they say, if you just have more faith, you will get those circumstantial changes. And they use the exact language that Elihu is using here. But that's not what Elihu is saying. And that's not what Jesus is saying. And that's not what Paul is saying. And that's not what James is saying. Peace of mind and soul. The ability to persevere. The ability to count it all joy. The ability to receive the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The ability to live within that realm without falling apart. That's what comes by faith. And not just the faith is what you need, your faith that you make to make that happen. No, no. When you cry out to God in faith, His answer to that cry is what perseveres you. That is His strength. That is His joy. That is His salvation that carries you through. It's His response to our cry of faith. And that's why Job's not getting it. That's why Job thinks God is silent. Because Job's not crying out in faith. Well, what's he doing wrong? He's very circumstances focused at this point. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. I deserve an answer from God. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. Won't work. It's the opposite of faith. So is a putting Job in, in verse 12 because of the pride of he is I would say the same thing I said about his last speech he's not lumping Job categorically with the evil men he's saying why are you talking like them that's really Job's I'm sorry Elihu's biggest beef with Job is that Job is thinking these things that are not consistent with what Job knows to be true. And Job is saying them out loud. He's saying them in response to his counselors. He's saying them to the gathered people. He's saying them because Elihu was there hearing it the whole time. Job, you have an audience. And what you're saying to this audience makes you sound like the wicked men. And that is such a great... We... We fall off as always one side of the horse or the other we either count ourselves amongst the righteous because we are in christ and therefore think i would never do that i could never do that this behavior is irrelevant to me i'm among the righteous i'm not (laughs) thank god that i am not like these men (laughs) that's one temptation The other side of the horse is, oh no, I thought I was in Christ, but look at what I keep doing. I keep sounding like the evil men. I keep acting like those who don't believe in God. And then that just festers into this, therefore I must not be in Christ. And Job's such a great example. At the end of the book, at the beginning of the book, Job is a righteous man that is declared by God to be in the kingdom. You will meet Job in the new heavens and the new earth. He's there. And yet, Brother Elihu can come along and be like, Job, your life, your profession, they're kind of at odds here. Oh, publicly, your accusers are wrong. You're right. You have a great public witness. But there's this this hidden self-righteousness. And one of God's reasons for bringing all of this calamity into your life, Job, is that this hidden self-righteousness would have to come out into the light where it could be exposed and put to death because you are in Christ. And so that's one of the tough prayers for us. I mean, I'm not praying it, but maybe y'all have enough faith. For God to put us in situations where our secret and hidden sins come out. We should, 
we should want our sin to be exposed. Think about how horrible that Paul. What do we want to do with sin? We want to hide it. And when we, we pile more sin on top of sin, we just, oh, it's got to stay hidden. The worst thing that could ever happen is that our sin would be exposed. And here we see, oh, no. The worst thing that could ever happen would be that it doesn't get exposed because then we don't ever deal with it. We don't ever put it to death. And so how in the world is the death of Job's children, the loss of his wealth, the destruction of his flesh, how in the world is this all things working for the good of those who love God and are called by God according according to his purposes? Now we see. What God is saying is that without this, Job's sin never comes to light. This was the best way in God's economy for that sin to come to light. While God's working out 14 other purposes with Job's suffering, including, most importantly, the defense of his own glory in front of Satan. Let's not forget that. But that is really hard for us. The idea that the best thing that can happen is for our sin to be exposed. Now, that doesn't mean the best thing that happens is that everybody in the world knows about all of your sins. There's this over-transparency craze in the church today where people just love talking about what a mess they are. I'm a mess and you're a mess. Why? Why are you okay with that? Like, Why not lay down that mess before Christ and walk in righteousness and good works that were set before you? I, I don't know. Just a thought. I'm not saying... Share all your deepest, darkest secrets with everybody. But you need those sins to be exposed. Somebody. Starting with yourself. God, show me my sin. And usually somebody else. Hopefully somebody in Christ, somebody who loves you, somebody who will hold you accountable, but who will hold you to the foot of the cross, not put you up on the cross. Questions, thoughts about, Pam, does that, I know it's a, but like that's getting to the heart of the answer. Yes, yes, exactly. God change my circumstances is not a prayer of faith. And we have learned a lot of creative ways to pray that. Now, we pray God change my circumstances. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But what's underneath is I cannot be okay unless you change my circumstances. I do not deserve these circumstances. I deserve better than these circumstances. Kate deserves these circumstances. Give them to Kate. Let me be fine. Does this mean that you pray, God, help this person? They are hurting. They need you. Glorify your name. Draw them to yourself. Bring them into eternal salvation. I know you've got this. I know you're in the miracle business. I have the faith to believe all of that. But if you want to write a really sucky ending instead of that, I'm going to be okay with it. Is that how we need to pray? Uh, yeah, it means a lot. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a sucky circumstances. No, but there's something very... I don't know that I want to pray... I'm okay. <laughs> hey, God, I'm okay if you give me sucky circumstances. But we have to be okay. But you have to be okay. That's right. No, yeah, you, you can say it this way. You can say it a lot of different ways that mean this. But if you can't come to terms with what Kathy just said, then you're not praying in faith. That... That, that is the heart of faith. The heart of faith in the... God gives us lots of answers. In Job, God is very gracious to give us tons of answers in this situation so that we can try to apply them to our own situations. Having answers is not the antithesis of faith. But the heart of faith says... I trust the one who speaks, regardless of how many answers I have. 
that I could be in this theoretical suffering in which I have zero answers. I cannot make my mind find one positive thing that comes out of this. And it can never change. There's no point in praying for it to change because it can't. And the heart of faith, in the pain which is allowed of this is the worst, not theoretically the worst, not (laughs) this is the worst. The heart of faith says, I trust the one who made it to be. And the, 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 the preemptory exercise before we get there, the thing that you don't want to talk about when you're in that moment, but that you should talk about now to prepare for that moment, is the, the logical thought experiment of that's the least bad of all the answers. In fact, that's the only good answer. Because if any of the other answers are God could have done differently but didn't, God just respects your freedom so much. He let you destroy your life. God's powerful, but not that powerful. All the other answers are so much worse. And when you're in the heart of suffering, I'm not going to come tell you that. That's not the moment for me to have that discussion. So I want to tell it to you now. Because in that moment, I'm just going to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. The number of graves that I have stood over and had to preach that to myself before I say a word to the people that are gathered. I don't have any more answers than they have. I don't. I don't have some way of saying, I know you can't see this because you're very sad, but here's the 14 good things that happened because of your horrific suffering. I don't have it. I don't have it. That's not what faith means. Faith is independent of those answers. It's not antithetical to them. God may give some. But faith is completely independent of those answers. And the only faith that I'm hanging on to standing at the graveside, that I beg God for mercy that they can hang on to at the graveside, is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because God, I have hit that iron bar of your impassibility. Job is trying to bash through that bar. Job is demanding answers from God. And he's going to hit that bar. And Elihu sees it. Elihu's the first person in this book to see it. And to, well, God saw it. To call him out on it. That's why Elihu's the first one in this book to say, Job, words without knowledge, brother, words without knowledge, watch out. And Job's not going to respond to Elihu. And so somebody else is going to have to come along and say, here, Job, let me make a case for you. And then what is Job going to say about himself? I've uttered words without knowledge. That's the difference between the cry of pain, only pain. And the heart of faith. Again, there's no, just like answers are not antithetical to faith, pain for our sorrow is not antithetical to faith. Count it all joy doesn't mean, boy, I'm really glad this happened. (laughs) That's not antithetical to faith. But saying, I will not be satisfied with God until God gives me satisfactory answers. That's antithetical to faith. That's words without knowledge. Ask, be curious if we can ask uh, Jonah how that worked out for him. I'm still not sure. Questions, thoughts about that? What's the, the fine, and then there's a distinction here, right? Is it uh, between Job's crying out for answers, I guess it's the demand, like, you know, and the psalmist crying out? How yep. long, why? Like, yep. So we do have that freedom to cry out. I think, <laughs> uh, slightly speculative here, but you'll get where I'm going. I, I think that's why the book of Job is so long. 
I think if Job had made one speech where he was speaking out of the heart of pain and had said some imprecise things about God in that speech, I'm not sure Elihu is justified to come along and say this. We've talked about that with comforting people. If you've really got to get down to, is that the, the, the pain speaking or is somebody telling you what they actually believe about reality? And I think part of the reason why Job is so long and so repetitive, this could have been over after the first speech of the counselors, you guys. We haven't added anything factually new since then. Why is it so repetitive? I think it's because we're seeing, no, this is not just the heart of pain of Job speaking. This is what Job is believing in the moment. And that's why Elihu is right to come along and rebuke him in the moment. You don't want to stand with those people, Job. That's how you're sounding. You don't want to stand with them. That's not where you want to end up. Some of it, I mean, obviously this is so important for us to get that God has dedicated such an incredible long and and in the light sometimes it's just it's just agony. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, are we still in joke? I mean yeah. yeah, you feel like you are almost, you know, walking through all of that. I, I and I think I think there's such important literary function to that. I mean you all know the the literature of the Old Testament is part of what excites me as a as a scholar of God's word. And I think part of the part of the point in this is it's bringing us along in Job's pain. It should feel relentless. It should feel hopeless. It should feel painful. It should feel dark. You know, we talk about sometimes people in their suffering talk about, you know, well, I know that light at the end of the tunnel. And I want to say to people sometimes, like, you shouldn't count on that. If the only thing holding you together is that you can see a light at the end of the tunnel, you're about to have a real problem when the road you're on takes a little dip and you can't see that anymore because it's coming. In all real suffering, there's not this light at the end of the tunnel. It's not suffering if you can see the end. Suffering is when you can only see down into more darkness. That's real suffering. And you're not going to have that light. <laughs> you're going to have faith or you're going to have despair or self-righteousness. But that's pretty much the exhaustive list. And I think Job is written the way it's written to pull us into that tension. And then you hear these speeches. Of the front. We're supposed to get sick of Job and his defenses and we're supposed to turn on job at some point which most people do of the boy job you just think you're perfect don't you and you're like nope so it's like job is it's a really well written 